Well, open with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, many of you know who have been with us here for many months. We are consecutively going through the gospel of Matthew, and we're picking up this morning in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, verse 15, and we'll be looking at through verse 21. Perhaps you've uh, heard a variation of, of this quote, which is attributed to Harry Truman, that goes something like this. It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. Being the 33rd president of the United States, Truman, he held the highest position of an elected leader in our country. And he was what we would call a public servant. He was elected to serve the people. And those in our government, they, they hold these jobs, which exist primarily not to make a living. Okay? If you want to make a living, you go into the private sector. If you want to pursue public ministry, you pursue it for the good of the people, to serve others, not to serve themselves. And in some way or another, the offices in the church of elder, pastor, and deacon, they function in much the same way. The public servant belongs to the people he serves. This is why it is especially disappointing when when some of these servants who are elected, they take advantage of their appointed position. And, And rather, instead of caring right for the public, they care for themselves. They serve themselves. The reality is, friends, that all of us, believers or unbelievers, we fall short of serving others in so many different ways. Naturally, we prefer to be served, not to serve. That's why constantly when you read the New Testament, the exhortation to the believer is what? To serve. Why? Why are we constantly encouraged to serve others? Well, because the natural tendency right, is to want to be served. You serve me. But serving others sometimes is burdensome, right? We know serving is honorable, but at some point, it just goes against our natural inclinations. Uh, Sometimes we we don't want to serve others or put others' interests above our own. Uh, We can resent sometimes, even in the church, others who do not value us as we think we should be valued. It's exactly what happens in the world as well. We, we might use service sometimes to, to leverage, to get what we want. The gospel here of, of Matthew, friends, especially here in this section, it presents to us a picture of the servant who is called the servant of the Lord. The servant here, he was appointed and chosen not by the people, but by the Father, so that he might serve the people. He was appointed to serve the will of the Father by loving the people and by being good to them. The whole purpose of his coming was to redeem sinners from their sins. And that is exactly what we find out as we read consecutively through the gospel of Matthew. And we get to Matthew 28 where Jesus says, all authority is given to me. He forever redeemed his people from their sins. Our passage this morning 
here comes on the heels of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Last week, we studied verses 1 through 14 with Jan, and here he admonished them, Jesus admonished them that they were unjustly accusing the innocent, his disciples, namely, for breaking the Sabbath. And he says, you should have known when you studied the law, the Old Testament law, you should have known that they were provisions to break the law. You should have known that they were exceptions. That's why he says uh, in verse five, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath? And guess what? They're innocent. Should have known this. Why are you accusing my disciples? Not only that, God's very desire and purpose of the law was compassion, not ritual, which Jesus gets to in verse 7. This here, this confrontation, I mean, it causes these Pharisees to flip out. So much so that look what happens in verse 14. But the Pharisees, they go out and conspire against him. And get this, as to how they might destroy Jesus Christ. Instead of turning to Jesus Christ in humility, they begin to conspire how to kill Christ. Think about this. They who were called to serve the people of God. They who were called to be the servants of Israel to point others to Christ. They are serving their own interests and are in fact killing the very son who came to show the heart of Christ. So Matthew here, he picks up his discussion in verse 15, and he deliberately, friends, deliberately shows the difference between who Jesus is and who Pharisees are. The Pharisees, they care about externals. Jesus, he cares about the heart. The Pharisees, they, they were paying much attention to, to just public And Jesus here, he prefers to keep silent as we find out here in verse 15. The Pharisees are merciless, right? They created all kinds of extra rules and regulations for people, but Jesus is merciful and offers rest for the souls of sinners. The Pharisees here, as we find out in verse 14, they conspire to kill Jesus, how they might destroy Jesus. And Jesus, on the other hand, conspires how he can save people. There's a world of difference between Jesus and Pharisees. And Matthew here wants us to behold Jesus Christ, God's chosen servant, to marvel at his mercy and compassion towards sinners like us, and to ultimately hope, find hope in him and him alone. Because where this account is heading, where this quote from Isaiah is going is right in verse 25. He ends by saying, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, not in someone else, but in Jesus Christ. And along with this example here, we see Jesus' example of service that we can begin to emulate in our dealings with one another as well. I want us to read beginning with verse 11 of Matthew chapter 12 to get the context and we'll read through verse 21. Jesus or Matthew continues to write and and he says, 
And he said to them, verse 11, what man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anywhere hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. As we look at this text, I want us to just gather our thoughts around this main big idea, which is this, because Jesus is God's chosen servant who is full of compassion and gentleness, he is the sinner's only hope. Because Jesus is God's chosen servant who's full of compassion and gentleness to sinners, he is then our only hope. In verses 15 and 16, I want you to look down at your Bibles. In verses 15 and 16, Matthew describes Jesus' reaction as he becomes aware of Pharisees' plan to kill him. And, And friends, his response is very different than what the crowds may have anticipated. If Jesus is who he says he is, and over the past 12 chapters, Matthew's been indicating that this man who appeared who was baptized by John, who came and who's doing all of these miracles. He is the son of God. He is the prophesied Messiah. If Jesus is who he says he is, why is he responding like he's responding in verse 15? Why is he going away? Aren't you the king? Aren't you prophesied Messiah who will come in and establish God's kingdom, establish God's rule? And Jesus instead And Matthew wants us to see this in verse 14. But the Pharisees, while the Pharisees are conspiring how they might destroy him, but Jesus, strong contrast, Jesus, he just says, oh, we got to (laughs) go. Let's get out of here. It's getting too busy. It's getting too confrontational. Now is not the time, right? It is before the assigned hour for me to get into this confrontation. And yet, this precise move here, this manner towards those who oppose Jesus Christ, is what causes Matthew to, as he writes, and as the Spirit leads Matthew, he's like, wow, that is exactly what Isaiah 42 says about Jesus Christ. And so he inserts this quote from Isaiah 42 right in our text. It causes Matthew to quote the longest Old Testament quotation in this entire gospel. This is the ninth time that Matthew has quoted the Old Testament. 
And in our verses here, Matthew is connecting Jesus to the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. As many of you know, through the prophet of Isaiah, God had recorded what is often known today as the servant songs, the servant songs, and and they can be found towards the latter chapters of Isaiah. And these songs here, there are prophetic psalms that, that basically explained the kind of person this Messiah will be and the kind of work he is appointed to accomplish. And so if we look at Isaiah, I'll just give you where they're located. You can write them down. Isaiah 42, one through nine is the first song. And it introduces the servant as God's chosen and God's beloved. This is the introduction to the servant songs. And then later on, some seven chapters later in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13, Isaiah then predicts the servant's successful ministry in bringing salvation to the world. So first the son is chosen and he's beloved of God. And as beloved and as chosen of God, he's going to usher in salvation for all the people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And then the third song is found in Isaiah chapter 50, which speaks of the servant's obedience and confidence in God, even in the great, uh, in the face of great trials. He will continue to accomplish, even though his mission seems like it is being thwarted everywhere and all the time. And then the final song, Isaiah 52 and 53, probably the well-known song, right? Isaiah 53, who, who who has believed our message, right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It describes the, the great sufferings and triumphs of this servant. And so in our verses here, 18 through 21, Matthew quotes a portion of the very first song, verses one through four of Isaiah 42. And it seems that Matthew here perhaps hasn't memorized Uh, Isaiah 42, because he's not quoting directly from the Hebrew or the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's basically paraphrasing it. You know how we sometimes do, we've memorized some verses, you know, in Awana or somewhere else. And then when we quote them, we maybe replace some words, but we get the general sense of, of what we are quoting. And so this is what Matthew does to some extent, paraphrasing. And friends, here it is. The first thing that Matthew wants to teach his readers and us this morning is to behold, is to behold the servant. So number one, behold the chosen servant. Behold my servant, he says in quoting from verse 18. That's the point, in fact, of the entire quote here, verses 18 through 21. That is the point of the entire sermon, entire message. Indeed, friends, to behold the Son is to point to the entire Bible and say, this is the exact point, this is the exact purpose of why he wrote this so that we may behold, so that we may look to the Son. It is the very point of our lives This word behold is Matthew's favorite words. One of Matthew's favorite words. This is, um, he uses the word 62 times in the entire gospel. This is the 24th occurrence of this word behold. Behold, behold. Matthew, he wants us to see. He wants us to marvel at the glory. He wants us to see and marvel at the compassion, at the beauty of this servant. 
Friends, it's as though as God through the prophet of Isaiah and now through the writer of, through the disciple, right, of Matthew, he's getting our attention and he is saying, may I have your attention, please? I mean, look with me. Please, please gaze with me. Admire my servant. Behold my servant. And as we've been talking about throughout the study of Matthew, it's as if God himself has this big old spotlight and he's putting it on Christ and everyone else is behind that spotlight. Saying that if you're going to look at someone, if you're going to emulate someone, if you're going to treasure someone and value someone, here's the one that you are supposed to treasure and value and that is my very son who is my servant. So whatever follows after the behold is very important. So he says, behold my servant. Behold my servant. I've already alluded that the servant here is this prophetic name that Jesus is given in the book of Isaiah. But, but more than the name, more than just mere title, right? This title, it describes, friends, the central motivation in Jesus's life. Servant. Central motivation in Jesus's life. He is a servant. Now, there are two aspects to Christ being the servant. Number one, Jesus serves the will of the Father. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant. Behold my God's own servant. In, in John 4, for instance, in 34, we read, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who has sent me and to accomplish his work. That's why I'm here. I'm ultimately here because I'm a servant and I serve him and him alone, God. And in John 5.30, he adds, I do not seek my own will. I don't serve myself. I haven't been placed and put in this position to now use all of you and those who appointed me to get what I want. No, I am here. I'm in this position to accomplish his will, to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus serves the will of the Father, but not only does he serve the will of the Father, friends, Jesus serves sinners. And that's amazing. Jesus serves sinners. Later on, we will find out as we go through Matthew in chapter 20, 28, he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I came because I want to please the Father. And in pleasing the Father, guess what? I'm sent in order to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for many sinners. So what we find then from this gospel and others is that Jesus' miraculous birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection were to bring glory to the Father and friends, salvation to us. Behold, the servant of the Lord. He served the will of the Father because he later on says, I love the Father. I love my Father. That's why I serve him. And he served us because, friends, his heart is full of love towards us. That's why he serves us. It's because he loves sinners. Loves the Father and loves sinners but more than that, it says in verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. The father 
installs the son, his servant, to do his will. Jesus was God's chosen person to accomplish the work. Remember just uh, in Acts chapter 6, there was an issue, right, with widows being um, overlooked. And so there was an issue. And then the apostles get together and it's like, who will we select, what, in order to accomplish, what, this task, in order to help, you know, distribute food so that we can focus on what we've been called to do. So there's a problem, then there's appointment, and those who are appointed by the apostles, they take care of the need. Nobody else, just them. They were put in place to do that. What's the need? Men are sinners. Men are separate from God. They're heading straight to hell. There is no reconciliation between God and men. That is the problem. And the father appoints his son. He chooses his son to be the instrument through whom salvation would come to us. That is why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, we come to this Christ. We come to Jesus as to a living stone, which has been rejected by man, but is choice, he's chosen, and he is precious in the sight of God. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is choice and precious in the sight of his father. He continues, and even before that, during his sermon in Acts chapter four, he says, for there is no other name under heaven given to men, by whom man must be saved. In other words, Jesus is the only one who is chosen and who is installed. And if you don't have Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't behold, if you don't marvel, if you don't hope in Christ, you have no hope. That's the whole point of verse 18. Behold my servant and I chose him. And then he goes on and he says, I love him. I love the servant. He's not only chosen, but the father delights in his son. And Matthew, once again, he uses this word beloved or to delight in three times. Once already we studied in Matthew chapter three during his baptism in Matthew three seventeen, when the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus Christ and the voice from heaven is uttered and the father speaks and he says, you see this son? You, the Holy Spirit is coming upon him. He is anointed. We'll get to that in a second. He's anointed by the spirit. And guess what? I love him. I love him. It's exclusive kind of love. The father loves the son. I am well pleased. Same exact word. I'm well pleased with him. The second occurrence is right here, right here at this very crucial junction. Think about it. Matthew 12 is a, um, it's a hinge chapter in Matthew. It's a very important chapter in Matthew. This is where Jesus basically gets called the devil. We'll, We'll get to that in a couple of weeks towards the end of Matthew chapter 12. But the father says, no, he's not. He's my son. He's my servant. I love him. He is the only chosen instrument. And sinners turn around and they contradict the testimony of the father and they say, no, he heals, right? He casts out demons by the power of the devil. 
And so right here, in the midst of this chapter, Matthew, think about it, Matthew wants his readers who may have been concerned now reading and seeing what is going on. Why is Jesus retreating? Why is he not going? And why is he not establishing his kingdom? What is happening? Matthew wants them to know that even though this is happening here on earth, the father installs his son and the father loves his son. And then later on in Matthew Chapter 17, during his transfiguration, he uttered basically the same words verbatim. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds a little remark. Listen to him. Listen to him. If you didn't get that before Matthew chapter 17, that this is God's beloved son, that he is God's only chosen instrument, then now get this. Everything reiterated and added you better listen to this one because if you don't listen to this one, you have no hope. Jesus is the beloved of the Father. Think about this. There is never a time, there was never a time in eternity past when the Father and the Son and the Spirit were not there. They always were, right? Were, are, and will be. That's the triune head. They've always been there. We believe in this doctrine called the immutability of God, which means that God never changes. If he was, then he is and he will be. If his nature was that way, then it is today and it will forever be. If the father loved the son back then, he loves the son today and only his son and he will continue to love his son. Jesus has always been beloved. They existed in this perfect love and unity. So because the father loves his son, the son demonstrates his love to the father by saying, yes, father, Matthew, or Hebrews chapter 10, right? He takes on the body and he goes in and he sacrifices himself. Philippians chapter two, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he demonstrates his love for sinners like us. That's why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I mean, this phrase, this, this title is so important. Why are we loved by Jesus? Why are we, or why are we loved by the father? It's because we are in him. It's because we come through Christ. And if the father loves Christ, guess what? Everyone who is in Christ is loved. That's why Paul can turn around and he says, beloved. That's why John turns around in John 1, 4 and he says, beloved, let us love one another. Why? Well, he assumes that you believe the gospel and if you believe the gospel, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are beloved by the father who has unlimited love for his son. And that's why Ephesians chapter 1 Paul can say we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not, friends, not because we're good, not because we're worthy, but because we're in his son. And the son gets everything. And because the son gets everything, he says, come, believe, behold the son. You see, again, behold, behold him, behold the son. Jesus is the one that the father delights in always. And because of Christ's redemptive work, 
The Father is filled with love towards us. So I hope that you understand that and that you are worshiping Jesus and you are worshiping the Father. Even as we're singing, as we're praying, you are reminded of the type of love that you have been shown. It's no different than the love for Christ. And that's why it's perfect. If Jesus loves you, or if Jesus, or if the Father loves Jesus perfectly, think about this. And the Father or the, the, the Son perfectly obeys the Father, then if we're in Christ, then, then the love of God for us doesn't depend on, on us. Right? It depends on the Son. And if we're in the Son, then we have everything. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John says, See how great the love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. It's this whole doctrine of adoption. Since we're in the beloved family of God, Jesus is now our beloved. That's why we love Jesus. We love Jesus because he first loved us. Isn't that what Romans says? All right? We love him because he first loved us. He is our greatest delight. And that is why we must again and again, we must adore and we must behold and we must admire him because this Jesus is anointed also with the spirit. I will put my spirit upon him, Isaiah writes. He prophesied, Isaiah prophesied in in chapters 42 and 61 that God's chosen servant, he would have the spirit upon him. And we already witnessed, right? When the spirit came down upon him during his baptism before he launched into ministry. And this occurrence here or this event in Matthew chapter three marked him out as the anointed one. In other words, he promised in Isaiah 61 that I will give my spirit without measure. He will come upon a man. This man comes, gets baptized with the Holy Spirit there and is marked out to be the Messiah. But here's what what, uh, sometimes is brought here in verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him. Some some question Jesus' deity because of it. Why does he need the spirit if he is God himself? Right? If he's already God, why does he need the spirit coming upon him? And I think the answer is really simple because along the truth that Jesus is 100% God, right? He is God. Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, he is God. Jesus is also a man. Jesus is like us. Right? Hebrew author, he writes, he had to become like his brethren in all things. Sleeping, right? eating hanging out with people, getting tired, all of that. that. That was Jesus. And as a man, Jesus, Hebrews chapter four says that he was tempted in all things, in all things, just like us. And yet he's without sin. He, as a child, grew in wisdom, stature, right? Luke chapter two, favor with God and man. And so this incarnate, this human Jesus, he received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that in his humanity, he might fulfill, right? This mission, he came so that he might walk in full submission to the Holy Spirit and in such a way accomplish this redemption. That is why, friends, Paul can later on in Galatians says, walk by the Spirit so that you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. Why did he say that? Well, it's because when we look at Jesus, how did Jesus accomplish his mission here on earth, his earthly ministry as a man, he came in full submission 
to the Holy Spirit. That's why he can even say, Paul, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We fully, all the time, walk by the Spirit like Jesus did. The problem is we don't. But he says, if you do, then you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 100% guaranteed. That's why Jesus was anointed, he was marked out, but also as a man, he fully submitted and accomplished our salvation, fully obeyed God, something that no other man can do. So friends, the father, out of his intimate love, he constantly points people to his son. He wants us to behold him. He wants us to be pleased with him. So right away, let us kind of consider and, and think through how do we then apply this to ourselves. And the question that I think we should be asking is, is, is Jesus, am I pleased with Jesus? Right? Is he choice to me? Uh, is, is he worthy of my adoration and my attention? Is Jesus this Jesus that the Bible describes? Not your own Jesus. You know, many people have their own version of Jesus. And that's not the one that we need to be beholding. We need to be beholding the Jesus of the Bible. And so when Matthew here and the spirit through Matthew is calling us to behold Jesus. That's who he's calling us to behold. This Jesus, sovereign one, to marvel at him, to delight in him. You know, friends, Jesus is not like us. In other words, when we just meet with one another, usually what happens is we think that we're, we're uh, really good. <laughs> like this guy's wearing a, you know, tuxedo. He's wearing a, a suit. Um, so he must be really good. He looks good, must be good. But the more you hang out, right, with that sinner, the more you realize that, hmm, may not be as good as advertised, right? But Jesus is actually the other way around, right? Because Jesus is perfect. The more we know Jesus, the more we study Jesus, the more we interact with Christ, the more we behold him, the better and better we understand, the more we delight in him. You know, Robert Murray McShane, he, he says this, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these truths. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hid in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? But there are unsearchable riches in Christ. Seek more of them. May the Lord enrich you. And this is our prayer this morning, is that as Isaiah called the nation of Israel, and as Matthew calls his people, and as we are being called by the same text this morning to behold Christ, that we may dig that we may treasure Jesus Christ. Behold God's chosen servant. But that's not all. Matthew continues on. And in verses 19 and 20, he uh, describes for us the heart of Christ. And so we get to our second point, marvel at the humble servant. Behold the chosen servant. Second, marvel at the humble servant. We'll come back to the end. The, the last line there in verse 18 in just a little bit, but here Isaiah tells us more about this servant. He says that this servant is a humble servant. He will not quarrel nor cry out, verse 19. Quarrel means to brawl with someone, to get into a fight. 
Cry out means that you, you scream out loud or you shout. You don't get what you want, you start screaming. Tantrums. Many of us are familiar with tantrums, not because we were the ones throwing them when we were young, but because we also witnessed them now as parents. Right? Tantrums. He will not cry out. In other words, Jesus does not resort to brawls or just these loud confrontation. He does not stir up the crowds. He doesn't debate. He doesn't argue with people. What is the usual approach, right, is that he withdraws. That's what exactly what he did in verse 15. When this whole thing, this whole scene unraveled and there were people who were conspiring to kill him, to destroy him, Jesus withdraws from them. I mean, what's the usual approach uh, for world leaders? Someone who wants power, someone who is appointed to serve, but he doesn't want to serve anybody. He wants to be served. What is his usual approach? He goes in and he demands. He cries out. He quarrels. In some sense, we're seeing this very act right, being displayed in front of us today on the world stage, but not so with Jesus. Jesus here, Isaiah emphasizes his humility. You know, he had many confrontation with self-righteous religious leaders, but he never entered into a shouting match with them or some kind of argument. Since he came to do his father's will, to serve him and to serve us. He doesn't take it upon himself to right all the wrongs at that point. It'll happen, friends. It'll happen. He will right all the wrongs, but not at that time. He came in order to accomplish salvation and to bring redemption to his people. So when he's opposed and this plan is set in motion, he's not contentious. Look what he says. Uh, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Right? He, he, he doesn't come and cause public riots. Instead, we find him gentle and lowly as he describes his own heart in Matthew chapter 11, right? Come and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly. Isaiah prophesies that when Jesus comes, he's going to be unlike any other king, unlike any other leader, unlike any other president. He will be different. He will avoid all the fan, fanfare, all the publicity. In fact, as we read in Luke chapter 19, right, today we're celebrating the coming, the inauguration, right? Jesus comes into Jerusalem and all the people are there right? Placing their coats so that Jesus would ride through as this promised king. And he is riding on the donkey, not on the horse, on the donkey. Why? Because it pointed to his humility. I'm different. My kingdom, he says later on that same week, standing in front of Pilate, he says, my kingdom friend is not of this world. Because if it was of this world, I would call legion of angels. You know, the old Testament tells us a story where one angel took care of 185,000 men, one angel. He says, legion, do you even understand? Do we even understand what kind of power Jesus has? And he says, I choose to hold that back because I got a greater plan 
right? My submission to the Father necessitates that I don't do this, that I humbly submit even to your authority right now because it's giving from the Father to put me to death. It's amazing. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, but I'm going to resurrect. And all authority will be given to me both in heaven and on earth. And time will come, friends. Now we're waiting for his second coming when all the wrongs will be righted by Christ. But today, today, we still rely on him. We still behold Christ. We still right, marvel at him. We are waiting for him to right all the wrongs, not us. For him to do it. Behold the humble servant. And he invites us, friends, to learn humility from him. This is what we need to do. In chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, take my yoke. I want to teach you something. Learn from me. Learn what? What would Jesus teach us? He says, I want you to learn my heart, that I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come and learn from Jesus. He invites us to marvel, to behold him. I mean, there's so much that we can learn from Jesus, the humble servant. I mean, sometimes we, we get into these interactions, we get into these discussions, and we become hot-headed, right? Adrenaline sets in, emotions get involved, and instead of preaching the gospel, we, we figure we may have started there, may have started there, but then we look back and you're, you're trying to tra- trace back to where you started and you have no idea how you got there. Why? Because you, we're not seeking the will of the Lord. We're seeking to establish ourselves. We can defend the right gospel, but we have to defend it with the right attitude also. No matter how difficult things friends get here around us, Jesus says, come, learn from me, and do it my way. Do it my way. That's why Paul says, you know, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. Christ. Again, man, every command, friend, in the New Testament is rooted in who Christ is and what he had accomplished for us. It is never divorced from the indicative, from the fact of the gospel. If Jesus is this way, then you do it this way too. And you can do it because you have the spirit of Christ. So consider what Isaiah says next. Jesus displayed his humility through his gentleness and compassion towards sinners in that he was gentle and that he was lowly. In verse 20, he says, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not pluck out. I mean, this is an incredible picture of the tenderness of Christ tenderness of Christ. Isaiah gives us these two illustrations, battered reeds, right? They were very common there around. They were used for a number of things. Most often they were used as musical instruments where like shepherds, they would bind them together kind of and make like a flute-like instrument and they would just uh, play it while they're out there in the fields shepherding, right? Uh, and so a band or a battered reed would just be then, once you use it for a while, it becomes soggy, starts to break off, chip off. And so what you do is you take it, you pluck it, you throw it away, and you just keep, keep playing. Battered reed, one that's no longer um, worth your time to repair, to fix. They were co- common, and so you, you didn't need to tinker with them. It's like, um, I don't know, paper plates nowadays, right? 
If you don't want to do dishes, you invite people over and you, you know, paper plates. And at the end of the day, you just gather them all up. And what do you do? You just throw them away. You never wash paper plates. And this is kind of like what, what the picture here. Reeds, broken reeds, common, available, throw it away. The second illustration is smoldering wick, right? And, and this wick is, was used in the oil lamp. So whenever the wick burns all the way to the end and then the oil is uh, no longer in the lamp, then if there's not enough oil, then the wig begins to what? Smoke, smolder, smoke. And he says that Jesus will not put out this smoking wick, right? It's, it's really annoying wick when it becomes to smoke because it doesn't give you any light. What a lamp should do, it only, what, gives smoke. And so a natural response is, hey, put it out, take out another lamp or take out a new wick, put it in and let's start the process over. These two pictures here, they represent bruised and battered, you know, broken down, worn out, outcasts in the society. Right? Those who did not matter, basically. But friends, Jesus wasn't like most. Jesus was very gentle with those who were looking for help, those who were broken, those who were battered. He was so gentle, never gave up. Bruised reeds, smoldering wicks are people who are broken and needy, people who are worn down, people who are ex exhausted by, their, by just life, exhausted by their sin, the tyranny of sin, people who are neglected, but Jesus comes in and he accepts them. Think about this. Who else would hang out with a woman at the well in John 4? I don't know this for a fact, but I'm willing to bet that that wasn't her first time there. Who else would hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, right? Who else would touch lepers? Be, be healed. I want to I do good to you. Outcasts, totally broken. They're no good for anything. That's what these pictures tell us. But Jesus says, no, I am going to, right, infuse life into them. Infuse life into them. That battered reed, that's no good for anything. No, I'm going to build it up. I'm going to bind it. I'm going to care for it. That smoking wick, you know, I'm going I'm to blow on it so that it can produce light and so that it gives a fire and that it burns and that it accomplishes its desired goal. That's what Jesus does. Richard Sipp says, he sheds tears, Jesus sheds tears for those that shed his blood. And now he makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians standing before them in God's anger. That's what, that's what Jesus does right now. For us who are weak, that's Christ, gentle and humble. And those who, those who know Jesus, we should marvel and we should follow his example. Friends, when we look at this, we understand we've all experienced this kindness. To some extent, we can all relate to this description of a battered reed and a smoldering wick. We were shown grace, right? And so he says now on through the example of Christ, how he dealt with us, may we now learn and deal with one another in the same exact manner.
should have tender compassion, true concern for both the lost and the saved, both. We plead with them. We, we weep with them. We don't give up. We don't judge them as useless and as unworthy. And when we are tempted to do that, where do we go? Where do we go for help? Isaiah tells us, behold, behold the son. Marvel at him. Look to Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. What a mercy that Jesus showed Peter. Remember Peter? Denied him three times. Can you imagine? Jesus knew the guilt that was in Peter. For, for, for Peter now to go to Jesus and to talk to him. I mean, have you ever sinned against somebody and you were running away from them and never wanted to do anything with them? And they, in just great humility and love, they pursue you and they restore you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Think about it. We make fun of Thomas, right? The doubting Thomas, who says, unless I you know, see the risen Lord, I will not believe. You think that was great statement? No. And Jesus, friends, what humility, right? He, he, he dealt with Thomas's weak faith to the point where he says, put your hand in my side and in my wounds. Just dealing with our sin, he's dealing with our weak faith. What a patience because he is the servant of the Lord. And he gives us an example how we are to deal with one another. He is God's chosen servant who's full of compassion and gentleness. And so verse 21 then tells us, therefore, therefore, hope in this one. Hope in this one, which brings us to the third point, hope in the exalted servant. Hope in the exalted servant. He was anointed by the Spirit. He came to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, verse 18 says, and to lead justice to victory. When Isaiah said this in Isaiah's day, justice was connected to righteousness, which was connected to the arrival of a righteous king. There would be no justice until the one who is able to install justice would come, and that would be this anointed Messiah. He speaks, Isaiah, of the day when the kingdom of God will cover the entire earth from end to end, and there will be perfect justice. And so Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible for God to be both what? Romans says, the just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ for salvation. Justice or this judgment is proclaimed most loudly at the cross, something we will remember this Friday. But not only will Jesus proclaim justice, but Isaiah says that this justice will be proclaimed not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. So this whole encounter with the Jews right now, Jesus leaving them, it's part of God's plan. Don't worry. To the Gentiles also. It was always in God's plan for God to bless the Gentiles. Genesis 12 tells us this right, that they, the nation of Israel, should have been the light to the Gentiles, but obviously they failed. They were also called in Isaiah the servant of the Lord, the nation of Israel, and God says, ah, I'm going to send another servant. You guys are a pathetic bunch. I'm going to send another servant who will do what he was set out to do. And when he died on the cross, declaring that it is finished, he fulfilled all that God sent him to do. 
He was faithful to the very end and brought justice to victory. Therefore, verse 21, and in him, the, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's the ultimate call. Even though you see this rejection, even though the Pharisees are running around and conspiring to kill him, hope in him. That's the call. Hope in him. There's hope for the Jews as well as the Gentiles, for everyone. So, if you need hope this morning, and all of us need hope, hope in him, in his name, in his name. It just takes everything about Christ, his person, his work, in the name of Jesus, everything um, in his name. He is the one who came. He is the one who accomplished. He is the one who perfected the work of God. And friend, if you are willing, come and hope. So going back to the big idea here as we wrap up, because Jesus is God's chosen servant who is full of compassion and gentleness, he is sinner's only hope. Friends, remember, behold, marvel, and hope. Jesus will make all things right. Even today when the world experiences chaos, friends, we have hope, knowing that Jesus will once again bring justice to victory in his second coming. And if you haven't trusted Christ and you're here in, the, in our midst this morning, if, if you don't have this joy, right? If you, if you don't have forgiveness of your sins, today is the day of salvation, hope and marvel. Hope and marvel. Because when you hope and when you marvel and behold Christ, you'll be obedient to Christ. Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing portrait of Jesus Christ. May we continue to behold even as we leave this place. I pray that you would etch in our minds and even in our very eyes the portrait of Jesus Christ who is so precious in your sight. May he become all the more precious to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.